Lasso. This afternoon we come to the fourth of the four measurables, translated generally, and I'll go along with the translation of equanimity, upeksha. At first glance, it can seem like something of a bit of anticlimax. Starts with love, and love is a many splendored thing. So we start on a high note. And then compassion is, oh, compassion. Empathetic joy, that sounds fun. And then equanimity. And then let down. That's all you, that's all you got? You couldn't have come to something a little bit better at the end, the big grand finale? Right. But in fact, equanimity is the richest of them all. It's the culmination of the four immeasurables. And for those of, with you, uh, those of you with an understanding and training in Mahayana Buddhism, then you'll know that Upeksha, this, this type of equanimity, is then the basis for launching into great loving-kindness, great compassion, the extraordinary resolve in bodhicitta. Without the Upeksha equanimity, you don't have anything except for attachment and aversion, right? With a nice, glowy, virtuous fringe. And so, in fact, it really is the culmination of all four, the grand finale. It's understood in two different ways, two different approaches. They're both very valuable, but they're quite different. In the Theravada tradition, the understanding of loving-kindness, very similar to that in the Mahayana, compassion, very similar in terms of speaking of boundless, all the barriers broken down so there's no partiality in the extension of loving-kindness, compassion, and likewise, empathetic joy. But in the Theravada tradition, when looking at Upekka, they call it in Pali, it really is more of an emotional state, an emotional state of imperturbability, of equanimity, of a balance, of extraordinary deep composure. Right. As I was thinking of lines from the Mahayana tradition, one that leapt to mind, is Shantideva's statement uh, that it comes in the Patience chapter, uh, and I'm sure you've all, all, all probably heard of it before. I'll say it again, though. And that is, when encountering something, some kind of adversity, some kind of trouble, if there's something you can do about it, then why be upset? And if there's nothing you can do about it, then why be upset? Right? No matter what, the response is equanimity. So if you've done all you can, good, then, re then relax. Whether it's global warming or your child has a flu, you do everything you can, and then equanimity, right? And if there's nothing you can do about it at all, then equanimity. So that's really the cultivation in the Theravada tradition of this kind of imperturbability. And one notes that from the direct catalyst, what immediately arouses this equanimity is really reflecting upon karma, actions and the consequences, actions and consequences. I could tell many stories of this regard, but I thought maybe not, time is short. But when we see gross injustice taking place in the world and so forth, first of all, compassion, loving kindness, is there something we can do? So what must never happen, or if it does, it's tragic, is if we allow our equanimity, that sense of just calm, the inner calm, equanimity, even-mindedness, to surmount, to suppress, or to undermine loving kindness and compassion. And that is, oh, well, after all, that's a comma. What can one do? And never reflect, what can I do? You know, what can be done? So that slips into the near enemy, the false facsimile of equanimity, which is aloof indifference. Well, it's a karma, what can you say? Karma. Then that justifies never doing anything about anything. Because one goes, just karma. So there's equanimity in the Theravada model, in the Shravakayana model, 
of seeking one's own liberation, which is a noble aspiration, but we see it has a different valence, this equanimity, this upeksha, this even-heartedness has a different valence, a different ambience, different quality to it as it's embraced in the, in the Mahayana tradition, in this whole current from India to Tibet, Mongolia, and so forth. And here it is an even-mindedness, even-heartedness with respect to people who appear to us to be pleasant, unpleasant, and indifferent. And that is responding to them with an evenly open heart. The spirit of caring. And I haven't mentioned that in this retreat, but it's really marvelous. It was something vividly brought to my mind by the Dalai Lama a number of years ago when he commented, and I'm sure it was from his own experience. I've never read it anywhere. Maybe he did, but I didn't have a sense it was academic knowledge. I had a sense it was just boom, straight from his experience. But when he raised the question, what is our most fundamental impulse, our most primary, fundamental, core, primordial impulse? And, he's, and he suggested it's caring. It's caring. Boy, do I think he's right. It's caring. If we hurt, how can we not care? You know, if you've injured your knee, how can you not care? If you see a possibility of happiness, how can you not care? If there's someone else you care about apart from yourself, and you see that they are suffering, or they could find happiness, or they found happiness, how can you not care? And so caring, it's called tsewa in Tibetan, is more primitive than loving kindness and compassion. It's more root. It is the root out of which the two branches, the two stems of loving kindness and compassion branch out. And so upeksha, equanimity, is an even caring, an even heartedness in one caring for the most belligerent, militant, vicious Al-Qaeda member to the most benevolent person who can one, one can possibly find who's just devoting him or herself to alleviating the suffering of others, whoever it is, I'm just trying to find extremes here, that one's sense of caring for them is even. Is even. It all balances out. If there's someone, whether it's a, an Al-Qaeda or just a fanatic, a sociopath or what have you, with, with or without any kind of religious beliefs, but is so deluded, so deluded, that they think it's a good thing to injure innocent civilians, then that person is worthy of compassion, far greater compassion than almost anybody else. Because they're not only miserable themselves, you can't be happy with that attitude, but they're creating misery for others and then they're sowing the seeds for further misery. So they're just like a walking, walking, talking embodiment of illness. In which case, how can one not respond with compassion? Whereas if we have a person who's tremendously benevolent and kind and warm-hearted, um, then it kind of like, go for it, <laughs> you know? It balances out, it balances out. Of course we care for them. So, but as I was reflecting on that, this, this whole theme of upeksha, and of course what it really boils down to, and I love the terminology of Martin Buber here, the Jewish existentialist philosopher, and that is overcoming the I-it relationship, looking upon other sentient beings, but especially human beings. Oh, here's, oh, here's, here's an, uh, this one I like, this one's very attractive, this is pleasing, this one person like, this person is nice to me, this person is quite nice, I like that person. This person not but nice, it hasn't shown respect, it's shown, oh, I don't like that person. And these people, they've not done anything for me at all, so they don't count, they don't matter. So that kind of bracketing, that pie, the, the carving up of the pie of all sentient beings, especially all human beings, I like them, I don't like them, and I don't care. And that's the opposite of upeksha. Right? It's opposite. So what one is simply responding to is peeping people as if they were paintings. As if they were paintings. You go into, an, into a, uh, let's say, uh, what, an art gallery. 
an art gallery, or go into a restaurant, what do you do? A restaurant, art gallery, whatever. You can, I like that one, I don't like that one, don't care about that one, oh, I really like that one, how much does that one cost? Don't like that one, I'd pay not on that one, you know? And so one is just basically going and looking at two-dimensional things, maybe they're portraits, maybe it's a portrait gallery. gallery. Ugly, ugly, very pretty, like it, don't like it, oh, yuck, uh, I like that one a lot, you know? And just, they're all flat, they're all two-dimensional, and so you're responding to a painting as a painting, and the painting doesn't mind. Painting has no feelings. So no problem, no problem, having an I-it relationship with an it, like a painting, right? But when we turn people into paintings, treat them as paintings, like walking, talking paintings, that's a problem, because we've dehumanized them. We've dehumanized them just as much as neuroscientists that will just reduce you to brain cells. That's dehumanizing, so is this, and we don't need to learn neuroscience to dehumanize. And so it's breaking that down until we really engage with every sentient being, human and non-human alike. And then very simply put, as we attend to another sentient being, we, the first thing that comes up is we have a sense somebody's looking back. It's that simple, you know? Somebody's looking back. It's not pretty, unpretty, like them, don't like them, have done something nice for me, haven't done something nice for me. All that's veneer. All of that comes and goes. All of human beauty, especially just physical skin and bones and so forth, is so transient. Here, date, gone tomorrow. You know, show me the glamorous 80-year-old. You know, Clint Eastwood, okay, but you know, <laughs> apart from Clint Eastwood, <laughs> Sean Connery, okay, he really is an exception. <laughs> but you know, for most of us, we're just on a track of getting uglier and uglier. <laughs> just watch this human prune. <laughs> That's me, and you know, just give me a few decades. Want to see it again? <laughs> really cute, huh? So, whatever it is, you know, it's all passing. Hmm. So, it's looking through that because whether it's the ugly old man or the gorgeous young woman, whoever it may be. There's somebody looking back, and they're not seeing themselves, especially when they're quiet and not, are not under scrutiny. They're not seeing themselves as, oh, I'm a gorgeous young woman, I'm a middle-aged man, and so forth. I'm pretty, I'm ugly, I'm... They're just there, wanting to be happy. They're just there, wanting to be free of suffering. And that's what, that's what endures through youth, middle age, old age, and so forth. Just want to be free of suffering want to find greater happiness if we possibly can. But as I was reflecting on that theme of breaking through the I-it to the I-you relationship, what really struck me was that if you've not found any, if you've not really even really begun to explore experientially, to know your own internal resources for finding a sense of inner peace, of serenity, of meaning, of happiness, of fulfillment. If you're looking in there and just an empty barrel, like <coughs> hollow, nothing inside, well, you still want happiness and you're not finding it inside. What are you going to do? Oh, she's pretty. Oh, he's got money. Oh, oh, oh. You're going to look out, you're going to try to find somebody that has some resources that can make you happy. What else would you do? You're not just going to stop wishing to be happy. But if you don't see any internal resources, you will look for it outside, whether in material acquisitions or getting other people to make you happy in one way or another. 
you will do it. Because you're not going to just stop wishing for happiness. And so as soon as we're starting, as we go out into the world with the question, who's going to make me happy? Who's going to provide me with security? And then we can think people are individual. People have different characteristics. Some, and I've raised this earlier with respect to the three qualities of resting in the substrate consciousness. Non-conceptuality corresponding to serenity. You remember vividly. The luminosity corresponding to a sense of thrill, of vibrant being alive. And the bliss. <laughs> bliss is bliss. Bliss is joy. And so some people, as we really make our way through life, some of us are looking more for what, who will make me really happy. Others will, who will give some excitement to my life, bring some, you know, some real jazz, some, some juice, you know? So the woman who wants the gangster for a boyfriend, a really burly, muscly, smack the woman around gangster, you know? But it's thrilling, I guess. Alma's kind of like that. She's, on, she's been looking for a gangster a long time. <laughs> and other people just looking for somebody secure. Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to be solid, reliable? Who's going to be with me till the grave? Who's going to give me some security here? Because I'm afraid. What woman, what man, what com company? What company will hire me for life and never let me go? They used to be, IBM used to do that. Japanese companies used to do that. We'll take care of you to the grave, you know? We'll bore you to death until you are dead. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a little price to pay. <laughs> like, you will die of boredom. So when we go out into the world and we're, we're wishing, who will make me feel secure? Who will give me a sense of thrill and the sharp edge and excitement. Who will excite me? Or who will just make me happy? We're already slipped into the I-it relationship. Who's going to do it for me? And what do I need to do for them? It's almost like bartering. What do I need to give to you so that you'll give me what I want? Let me know and I'll, I'll try to see, see. I'll see if I have enough money in my account. I'll see if I have enough wherewithal to try to give you what you need so that you'll give me what I need. So we enter kind of a bartering relationship. I think it happens a lot in marriage. I think so. Friendships, business partnerships, international relationships. I, it, all the way up and all the way down. So the more that we can actually discover through our own experience that you can actually be content to sit and be breathing. That's big. It's really, really easy, I mean extremely easy to underestimate the enormity of the practice of mindfulness of breathing. But if you can sit in your room for eight hours a day and be content to breathe, that's amazing. Unless you're just completely doping out. <laughs> you know, that's not so amazing. But if you can actually be present, clearly present, and be content to breathe, that's big. That means when you step out of your room, you won't be going out, who can make me feel peaceful? Because I just stepped out of my room where I already had peace. If you can go beyond peace and start experiencing a sense of well-being, as the Buddha referred to this, and it is so literally true, as you cultivate and develop the mindfulness of breathing, you'll experience a sublime state, an ambrosial dwelling. 
If you start discovering that for yourself, then you have no reason to go out of your room for happiness because you have happiness in your room with no stimulation at all. The stimulation is your breathing in and your breathing out. In which case, you have so little incentive then. If you've really found happiness there, then what do you, what do you need other people for? If you've already found happiness, you don't need to be tapping them like going and hitting a tree with a stick, hoping some fruit will fall down. If you've got already a, bu a bundle full of fruit, then you don't need to be hitting, hitting trees. So, there, so that's one, one strong connection between the shamatha practice and this equanimity. And that is the more internally impoverished we feel, the less chance we have of developing genuine equanimity, an equally open heart. How, how is it possible? How can we do that? Because we're always like, hungry pretas. who's going to make me happy? Who's going to make me secure? Who's going to excite me? Who's going to make me laugh? Uh, and if it's not a person, then you go to the television. Okay, which channel? Which channel? You know? I got nothing. What do you got? 250 channels, huh? Okay, this is going to take a while. <laughs> click, 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 click. The Food Channel, infomercial, reruns, sitcoms. I've already seen it. <laughs> so if you've got nothing inside, you will look outside and you will enter into an idiot relationship with your television or with other people or whatever is nearest. So that's one point. But there's another point, too, and it's on this one that I'll end. And that is, you remember the Peanuts character, Pigpen? Everybody seen Pigpen? He's a little character in the Peanuts cartoon. Pigpen, yeah, if you're from Bulgaria, you might not have picked it up. If you're American, <laughs> if you're American, everybody knows Pigpen. And Pigpen is this little cartoon character, a little kid. It's, it's basically a cartoon all about kids. And Pigpen, as you can imagine, he doesn't have very good hygiene. So whenever he walks, he walks with a little film of grunge, of dirt. He just kicks up a dust, but the dust is coming from him. It's not from the environment. He just goes, shh, and then he's just surrounded by a film of dust, of grime. He's a grimy little kid. But you can imagine if you're in, in basically walking around in your own little dust storm of grime, because he walks around with a, a globe of dirt around his head, right? Hence, pig pen. Uh, you can imagine that whatever he looks through, he's always looking through dust. He can be looking at a brilliant sunset, a, cl a clear glass of water, Mother Teresa, whatever he sees, he will see that through dust-tinted lenses. I really like the image. I've used it many times. Um, because we're all pig pen in the sense of being subject to OCDD, obsessive compulsive delusional disorder. We're walking around in a haze of an ongoing flow of obsessive thinking which is just filtering everything around us, and then compulsively latching onto it, and, the, and then deludedly, deludedly taking what we think to be true, we're walking around through life with, with a film, with a globe of I, me, mine, because so many of these thoughts are self-centered. So, so through this globe of obsessive, compulsive, delusional thinking, we attend to others, and we're seeing them through the film, and the film is largely a film, a, film, a cloud of I, me, mine. Right? And it's just flowing compulsively, like a faucet you just can't turn off. And so as long as we're looking out at the world, whether an, at an, an environment like the Mind Center, other people, our children, parents, lovers, and so forth, it's all going to be filtered through I, me, mine, I, me, mine, I, me, mine. And so how is that going to work out with equanimity? When the dust never settles. Whereas as you develop that ability, and it's cultivated breath by breath, day by day, session by session, to let the dust die down, 
Let the, so let the dust of the mind settle so that when you attend to another person, attend to another person one by one, there's a clarity there. There's nothing in between. Your mind is quiet, it's clear, it's relaxed, and you give the other person your full attention. But it's quiet. As you're attending to the other person, you're seeing 100%, whoa, there's a person there. There's a person there. I'm on podcast, so I can hardly say anything really private, but I'll go ahead and have a true confession. When I was 20, I experimented a little bit with um, <laughs> substances. <laughs> and one of the most interesting, most meaningful experiences I had, and then I stopped when I was 20, went off to India, never had any curiosity, I've never taken anything since. But there was a brief phase of taking substances where I was sitting on a park bench outside of the city of Göttingen in midwinter, Incredibly beautiful snow on the ground. But what really struck me was, as I was sitting on the park bench and walking peop watching people walk by, it was, almost it was almost volcanic. It was almost like unbearably intense to see people walking by and think, my goodness, there's somebody walking by. Oh. Wow. Really something. There's somebody else out there. Just this intense sense that, wow, there's somebody. And they're really there. And it's not me. And there they are. Wow, that was like a near-death experience. It's like, whoa, I'll never get, get over that one. So I can't regret taking the substance on that day. To kind of get it, wow, there's really people out there. They're not just reflections of my mind. They're not just ones I like and don't like. But, oh, they're there. So for that, the mind has to calm down, to be clear, to be translucent, so that when we're with another person, we're just like with three exclamation marks afterwards, we're really with them, attending to them, and they become real. And that's what it was. They really became real. Like, wow, I'm not alone here on the planet. Very interesting. So, let's go ahead and practice, see what happens. let the dust of the mind settle. We work from the ground up by first of all settling the body right down to the ground.
as you grow more familiar with this initial phase, you may experience kind of a melting quality as you surrender your muscles to gravity. Setting your body at ease. Out of the ease comes stillness. Out of the stillness, you balance that deep relaxation with vigilance. settle this chatterbox of the inner voice, the mental commentary, in its natural state of effortless silence, the silence of of a lute on which the strings have been cut, a skillful means for bringing about this inner quiescence is to settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, releasing all control as if you are allowing your whole body to fall asleep and the respiration to fall into the flow of the breath while sleeping. Allowing the body to fall asleep while you retain the level of clarity with which you began. With every outbreath, relaxing with a sense of joy that you have an avenue here to experiencing a bit of peace and quiet internally. For a little while, settle your mind with a quality of ease, stillness, and clarity while attending to the sensations of the breath, wherever they most distinctly arise in the body.
And now let's shift from this more quiescent mode of quietly attending to the breath to the more active mode of drawing on the luminous potential of awareness, imagination, vision, memory, intelligence. I invite you now to bring to mind, perhaps with strong images, but if you're not so oriented towards visualization, simply bring to mind a person for whom you feel strong attraction, attachment. Perhaps it is a person you'd love to know better, to have a closer relationship with. Perhaps it's a person with whom you already have a close relationship. And feeling this person is very important to my well-being. I love being with this person. I need things from this person. I want you to make me happy. Reflect upon the qualities that are so attractive make this person seem so important to you, for your very well-being. And allow that attachment, that desire to arise. I want you. I need you. You're important for my well-being. Don't go. It's very easy to attend to others with the eyes of desire, of attachment, of clinging, of dependence. And now let's attend to the same person with the eyes of wisdom, with the awareness that we've all not always had this relationship with this person. Where there is meeting, there is parting. Quite possible at some time this person was a stranger. It is very possible this person will become a stranger in the future. Friends become strangers, strangers become enemies, enemies become friends. All that we experience is in a constant state of flux. The agreeable can eventually appear disagreeable.
But in this whole flux, what remains constant is that anything that is constant from day to day in all the vicissitudes of life, the changes of relationships. And I would suggest that there is this person whom you've been attending to every morning wakes up and wishes to be happy, to be free of suffering, suffering and fear, to be safe, free of pain, every morning, every day. Just like yourself. the inner riches of your own Buddha nature visualizes an orb of light. With each out-breath, breathe out the light of loving-kindness. Breathe out the breath of loving-kindness. With every out-breath, arouse this yearning. May you, like myself, be well and happy. And imagine this light suffusing, permeating, this individual, helping them realize their heart's desire. If you know this person well, you may very well know what troubles this person, what fears and anxieties, what sufferings, what pains this person experiences. With each in-breath arouse the yearning. May you, like myself, be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. With each in-breath imagine drawing in the darkness of this person's troubles, dissolving this darkness into the radiant orb of light at your heart, dissolving it there without trace. With each in-breath, may you, like myself, be free of suffering and the causes of suffering.
Let the appearance of this person dissolve back into the space of your mind. And bring to mind vividly now a person who makes you feel very uncomfortable. Maybe it's this person's own behavior, the intensity of this person's mental afflictions, or it may be because of the way this person has treated you badly. The very sight of this person may give rise to a discomfort, an aversion, a recoil. Bring this person vividly to mind and the qualities that you find so repellent. What makes this person such a disagreeable object? As you attend closely, allow that aversion to arise. As if this person is 100% pure disagreeable, bad. attend once again with the eyes of wisdom. It's very unlikely this relationship has always been such. At some point, this person may very well have been a stranger, or at least not an enemy, not always appearing so disagreeable. In the future, this person may become a stranger, simply forgotten, or could even become a friend. People's behavior changes. The intensity of their mental affliction waxes and wanes, increases and decreases. People change. Whatever our relationship with the person now is just a snapshot a single frame in a very long movie. But there is something constant. Day and night, even when this person is dreaming, there is a wish, may I be free of suffering, free of pain, free of fear. May I be happy. And this person, like each of us here, has that capacity. There is that hidden dimension of utter purity, luminous presence,
there's hope. This person too could find genuine happiness and all that impedes that could vanish. As before, with each outbreath, arouse the yearning. May you, like myself, be well and happy. Breathe out this light of loving kindness. Breathe in all that impedes this person's happiness, internally and externally. Breathe in with the aspiration, may you be free, like myself, of suffering and the causes of suffering. With each in-breath and with each out-breath, imagine it to be so. Imagine this person finding freedom, finding genuine happiness. the appearance fade back into the space of the mind and now very briefly bring to mind someone for whom you feel neither attachment nor aversion and in the same way attend closely in this world of flux and change attend closely to this person like yourself breathe in breathe out as before Release all appearances and let your awareness rest in its own nature.
Voilà ça. <coughs> one could ask the question, is it possible to develop such attachment that one has, for example, in romantic relationships, friendships, and so forth? Could one develop such an attachment to a spiritual teacher, to a lama, to a guru? I would say yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Looking upon some other person now, all the romances, they didn't work out. It's all basically two egos coming together, trying to find happiness from each other. That didn't work out. Other thing, nothing else. Oh, it's the guru that will make me happy. That person over there, he, she, will. that, that person will make me happy. And then expecting, okay, I'm coming. Deliver the goods. <laughs> I'm ready. Give me darshan, give me blessing, give me mind-to-mind transmission. I don't like my mind, I want yours. <laughs> Suck it to me, I'm ready. I want rikpa. You got rikpa, I don't got rikpa. Give me your rikpa. You're compassionate, I'm not compassionate. Give me your compassion. Ah. Like that happy dog lying in the sun. Oh, nice hot sun. Ah. Like the guru's compassion. And then the guru goes away. Oh, my guru's gone. My guru's gone. Don't leave me, don't leave me. It's just attachment. Go back to the teachings of the Buddha. We find these powerful statements, like almost like great peaks in the Himalayas. One who sees the Dharma sees me. One who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. It's echoed throughout the last 2,500 years of the Buddhist tradition. One who sees the Dharma sees the Guru. One who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. One who sees the Dharma sees one's own Buddha nature, which is beyond craving. You can't become attached to your Buddha nature. No worries there. It's not an object. You can become attached to the idea of Buddha nature, but you can't become attached to Buddha nature. So Atisha, a great Indian master, about a thousand years ago, when he was about to pass away, of course his students terribly sad, because he'd been just, I think, almost unimaginable benefit to the people in the land of Tibet. Such majesty, such compassion, all the qualities. Just like Galileo was like everything you could want of a scientist, Galileo had it all. Atisha was like that for Dharma. He was a Mahasiddha, he was a scholar, he was a Bodhisattva, he was a teacher, he was everything. Everything we'd ever want, Atisha was it. You know, he was like, whoa, 100% fantastic Lama. So you can imagine how sad, sad they were when they thought, oh, we're going to lose him. And he said, if you've understood my Dharma, and he was referring especially to the lamp for the path to enlightenment, he said, I've just given you my Dharma, so I'm going, but if you understand that, then you still have me. I'm not going anywhere. If you've understood the Dharma, then there's nothing to be sad about. So I think this is especially important in today's world, where there's so many personality cults. It's very much part of modernity. So much focus on individual. You know, the celebrities, the image, the hype, the all oh, the business. Most sexiest man in the world. 
sexiest woman in the world, richest man in the world, fastest athlete, etc., etc. So much emphasis on person, person, person. All the more reason, especially in today's world, that even the Buddha was simply one who passes on the Dharma, right? In terms of refuge. Even the Buddha is simply the doctor. But the doctor doesn't heal you, right? doctor doesn't really heal you. It's the medicine that heals you. It's the Dharma that is the ultimate refuge, the central refuge. Dharma is the medicine. And then the Sangha, our fellow journeyers, and this lineage of practitioners, accomplished practitioners over the centuries, who have transmitted this with such reverence, such faith, such a sense of responsibility. They're, of course, like our companions, like our nurses, like those who assist, help us be able to ingest the medicine. So I hear occasionally, actually quite pretty frequently, because I meet with a lot of people, some people say, oh, after all, what do we know what the Buddha really said? Oh, after all, I mean, it's so long ago, and so many institutions, and what do we really know what the Buddha said? As if that's an answer. As if the answer is we don't really know. I feel sorry for such people, frankly. I think it's more a reflection of their own personality than anything else. I know for myself, I'm really ordinary. But when I'm teaching Dharma, it's just immensely important to me. I cannot say too high words. I cannot. How important it is to me that I pass on the Dharma without distortion. If I feel I'm starting to distort, I just want to stop t teaching. Absolutely. I'd rather be a gardener. But that's ordinary. There's nothing special there. That doesn't put me above some other people. It's just, but that's just normal, right? That if you're passing Dharma on, it's so precious that to distort it is just oh, unacceptable. Right? Don't even dream about it. Teachings are so precious. Did my teachers have any different attitude? Did my teachers think the Dharma was less precious than I think? Geshe Rapten, Geshe Taige, His Holiness, Gyatrudan Bhutchu. I've had about 60 lamas over the last 40 years. Did any one of them think that the Dharma was less precious than I think it is? I don't think so. Did any one of them have a sense, oh yeah, I can just make up my own dharma, screw it up this way, screw it up, add this, subtract that. It's basically whatever you feel like saying, you just say it. Absolutely not. Outrageous. Ridiculous. How about their teachers? That was a lower grade? Geshad Optin's teachers? Not as good as he was? His holinesses, Ling Rinpoche, Tijan Rinpoche, were, didn't have that sense of impeccability, that sense of reverence, Exactly which generation are we saying was the crap generation? They said, oh, we'll just screw it up any way we like. We'll just make up our own dharma here. Which generation was that? And I think I'm just, to my mind, I'm just speaking reasonably here. That this is refuge in Sangha. We do know what the Buddha said. We have very good reason. And there are multiple dimensions of that, to be sure. There's the basic, basic teachings of the Buddha recorded in the Pali Canon. But the Buddha isn't just appearing in one way. It's all, that is, when we understand the teachings of emptiness, 
You see, there is no inherently existent Buddha that was just absolutely the way he was, independent of anybody's perception. How the Buddha is perceived is relative to the purity of the disciples' minds. So when the Prajnaparamita Sutra say that the Buddha and Rajgir was teaching to how many? Hundreds of thousands, millions, whatever. It's a different, whole another dimension. It's, it's assuming you've understood the Prajnaparamita and from that vantage point, the Buddha is teaching Prajnaparamita within that context, not just the mundane, everybody can see, ordinary vision. When the Kalachakra Tantra states that the Buddha appeared down in the south of India with a whole mandala of the Kalachakra and revealed the Kalachakra Tantra, they're speaking of another whole dimension there. I don't believe this is just somebody who kind of took too much acid and then started hallucinating, ah, maybe the Buddha taught Kalachakra. I don't think so. I don't think they're that stupid. I mean, it's really stupid to just dream up something and say, oh, the Buddha taught it, because, well, that's just what I feel like. So whether it's the basic Sravagayana teachings, the Mayana teachings, the Vajrayana teachings, to my mind, they all stem from the Buddha and the Dzogchen. When Dujum Lingba, you know, when Dujum Lingba in the, the mid-1860s, when he's having direct vision of Samatavadra, well, my sense is he was having a direct experience of Samatavadra. And my sense of that, I mean, of course, I'm just expressing a perspective. But it's not blind faith. I don't believe everything I'm told. But when you study something well and you try to practice it, and you really receive blessings from your teacher, confidence may very well arise. It has in me. And it's not blind faith. There's nothing blind about my faith. It is faith. It's not like I know everything I'm saying. But it's faith based upon evidence that I find very compelling. So this notion, oh, who knows what the Buddha said? A lot of people know what the Buddha said. If you don't, that's your problem. If you don't have faith in the Sangha, then find, find faith in something else. But why call yourself a Buddhist if you don't even have faith in the Sangha? If you have no confidence in the Sangha, then wh what's, what's the big deal? Why, why don't you just call yourself a you? Why don the cloak of being a Buddhist when you have no confidence in the Sangha? No real confidence that the, that the Dharma is attribute, actually was taught by the Buddha? No confidence in the Buddha's own reports of his enlightenment? Why, why do you cling to the notion of being Buddhist? Why don't you just call yourself human being? Isn't that a sufficient for you? Do you need to be, belong to a club that you don't belong to? So I think they're very good grounds. Very good grounds. But you don't get it just by studying, and you don't just get it by talking. So, something like that. But the real refuge, when all is said and done, the ref, re, real ref, refuge, the core refuge, the essential refuge. It's not the Sangha, they're here to help. It's not the Buddha, it's not the Guru. It's not somebody out there who is simply here to guide. Refuge is the Dharma. One who sees the Dharma sees oneself, sees one Buddha nature. And then you've found a refuge you can rely on forever. And if you don't have, fa if you don't have faith in that, I think any faith we have in anything outside, anything outside will be a bit transient, come and go. So, sorry for wasting your time. Any questions or comments about the practice? We did awareness of awareness this morning, equanimity this afternoon, everything crystal clear? Yes, go ahead, Jacob. 
And by the way, if any of you at any time would like to ask a question, because obviously I've just said Jacob, so this is going to a podcast. People will know that somebody called Jacob is about to say what you're going to say. But at any point, if you'd like to ask a question, which you don't really want your name you know, associated, that everybody knows you asked it, just write me a note. Um, but don't do what some people have done with great faith in me, which was undeserved, and that is write your name and say anonymous. Because, as you've noticed, my speech sometimes just flows like a river. <laughs> and more often than not, the name just slips out. So just don't put your name on it, and then I don't have to be careful. And just ask whatever you like, and then I'll say somebody asked. So that way, okay? Because you should feel free to ask any question you like, and you don't need to call it attention to everybody who's listening here and elsewhere that you are the one that asked it. Jacob, what's on your mind? See, uh, see if I can say this clearly. Um, so the practice that you taught just now um, mm. for equanimity. Right. Um, so if I remember right, in the meditation chapter of the Bodhicharvatar, um, that practice, the Tonglen, and um, then equalizing self and other, and another one, uh, they're all taught in the context of exchanging, meditation. Exchanging self and other, yeah. yeah. Um, instead of, well, um, instead of like a, just straight shamatha instruction for meditation. So, um, and I've uh, read in another text that this also, like, um, these three particular practices are a support, can be considered particularly a support for cultivating shamatha or cultivating meditation. Um, so can you elaborate on, on that? Or that? I mean, because we've, we've had the four immeasurables, but this in particular, this, this practice, comes in that context. It does. It, it does. I, I, I pulled out a few verses, basically, and then put them into the cauldron of equanimity, stirred well, and that's what you got. Yeah. So I think a lot of you saw it coming <coughs> when practicing loving kindness, that sense of, of at least breathing out, or perhaps breathing out with the light of loving kindness. As soon as you saw that, some of you thought, ah, this is half of, half of Tonglen. And then when we practice compassion, and we're breathing into darkness, say, hey, that's the other half of Tonglen. When's he going to put it together? So we don't just have Tong, 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 and Len, 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 but we have actually <laughs> Tonglen, sending and receiving. So I waited and waited until I saw the whites of your eyes. <laughs> and then when I saw equanimity was there, then I <laughs> shot you with Tonglen. So yeah, it's interesting that in the chapter devoted to Meditation, for which the word, of course, in Sanskrit is dhyana, dhyana paramita, dhyana as in dhyana, uh, that Shantideva would begin the chapter um, by addressing the common imbalances of attention, especially excitation, distraction, coming, commenting that a person whose mind is distracted lives between the fangs of mental afflictions. Uh, he starts there. So he's, that's his flat-out shamatha talk, right? And then, then he extols the, the joys of solitude and extols the joys of overcoming sexual craving. He's talking to monks, so he's talking about women's body. If he were talking to a group of nuns, he'd talk about the disgusting quality of monks' bodies and, and men in general. Hair all over the place, in disgusting places, you know. But, so there it is. I mean, it's classic 
but really developing, number one, recognizing here the attentional balance is number two, really trying to scale down. I mean, I love those patches. It's the first time I read them because I'm coming from a kind of an adoration of Henry David Thoreau and Walden and the, the joys of simplicity and so forth. That's really in my genes. It goes back a long time to my teens. So when I read the eighth chapter of Shantideva and his, his really, it's, it's his, beautiful, his beautiful verses about just the joy of going to nature and solitude, I said, wow. This, this is Henry David Thoreau in, in India in the 8th century. And then, you know, carrying on from there, what he's doing is clearing the decks. He's clearing the decks. He's cleaning out the garbage. It's almost like coming into your home and cleaning out garbage. That, and, it's, and it's garbage. It's very strongly promoted nowadays. I read this in Time magazine a while back. Some person, I remember his name, but I'll keep it anonymous, but he said, you know, human beings cannot be happy in solitude. We need other humans. We are social creatures. We are social creatures. Ever heard that one before? We're social creatures. The only way we can find happiness is through interrelationships. The only way we can find happiness through is relationships. And we get this in the movies all the time. You know, it's not money, it's not acquisition, it's family. <laughs> that that's your ultimate refuge. And it's really, it makes really good sense because after all, families are permanent. <laughs> and they're intrinsic wellsprings of joy. So why shouldn't one take ultimate <laughs> refuge in family? Because they always give joy. Your children are born to make you happy. Those of you who have not had children yet, just wait. <laughs> and, and spouses, we know that spouses always make us happy. Because you know, that's what they're designed to do. They were just born to be our other half. And to say, how can I help you, master? Or mistress, you know. How so, you know, there we are. And pardon the language, but Shandi Davis is cutting through all the bullshit. He said, we are social creatures, but we are also, here we are, individuals in the universe. And that these relationships that are so contaminated by, so mixed up with attachment, whether it's sensual craving, whether it's codependence, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just a cauldron of a mess. It's called samsara. So developing, he's really cultivating in that eighth chapter, cultivating a pretty much thorough and if possible, irreversible disillusionment. To think that anything, any place, anybody, anything out there is going to make us happy. That's it. So he's trying to cultivate an attitude that if you just person cultivated that attitude and then just plunked them down someplace in a major city, uh, everybody around that person would think you're in dire need of psychotherapy. Because you've lost all the joy of living. You've lost your sexual drive. You've lost the desire to really make something of yourself, to succeed, to get money, to... You've really lost it. But I think, number one, some Prozac, maybe some Xanax, and then some pretty intensive therapy could get you to be screwed up like the rest of us. <laughs> so he's cutting through that. And it's really quite severe. I mean, it's pretty intense. And then from that, one can think, man, he's really intense, like he wants us all to become... I don't know, just isolated, living like anchorites in caves. He comes from that, that radical decontextualization out of samsara, and then comes right back in with all pistons pounding away to come back to compassion. It's really quite amazing what he does there. And all of that is in the service of jhana, right? So I think what he's emphasizing there is what I've been emphasizing all along, and I'm just following in his footsteps, 
is that the cultivation of shamatha, of attentional balance, is really a prerequisite for developing genuine loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, and so forth. But the more we develop this, this genuine sense of, of, number one, the sense of equality of self and other, the exchange of self and other, and then out of that developing this great compassion, great loving kindness, and anita bodhicitta, all of that, of course, is enormously enriching and deepening the, bodhi, the shamatha. So the two are reciprocal. And then on that basis, then you're ready for the culmination of the six perfections, and that's wisdom. But it's wisdom so drenched in sanity from shamatha and drenched in just sheer goodness of bodhicitta that it really then deserves to be called the, the pinnacle of all the perfections. Maybe something like that. Does that answer the question? Kidok. Yes, Raul. Well, my question is regarding this uh, morning uh, practice. Awareness of awareness, right. Yeah. Uh, I'm like kind of stuck in the volitional process. Uh, when you were talking about looking for the agent, yes. and at some point you direct the practice in, in the sense of looking for this sense of direction. Uh, someone who is actually uh, conducing the, the process. Yeah, yeah so somebody in here, yeah. somebody in charge, yeah, somebody exactly. doing it, the CEO of the meditation. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> then, uh, well, I have a problem to, to look for. I don't know how to look for it. Obviously, there is a strong sense of someone directing awareness mm -hmm. to itself. Right. But I don't know how to look for the one who is directing the process. Uh -huh. But there certainly is an experience of direction, of will. Yes. Uh, yeah, will is very closely related. Yeah. yeah. This I will, therefore I am, would be... <laughs> one aphorism yeah. one can use here. So, uh, well, my, my question was, could you explain a little further about this? The first response is, you probably won't come to the, will not come to the culmination of that practice in the first session. <laughs> That's the first one, yeah. It's a very deep practice. Very deep practice. Within Buddhist philosophy, as you probably know, there are multiple layers and layers, almost like an onion, from coarse to subtle, of delusional or misguided senses of self, right? And it can go completely psychotic. I mean, that, that's not generally included in Buddhism because medicine is generally somewhat in a separate category of, you know, sheer psychosis, people who are really fundamentally and medically delusional. But that is the, the far extreme of the whole spectrum. I've often given the example, it's a very silly one, but I think we can all understand it, of me, for example, thinking that I actually am Napoleon, you know, and expecting people to treat me as if I'm Napoleon. You know, well, that would be delusional, right? And so that's a case, I mean, obviously a silly one, but in, in cases of psychosis, schizophrenia, and so forth, one may have a very, very thick, very heavy notion of I am that is wildly delusional. I knew, I knew in the early 70s, I had a very intense period of my life in Dharamsala, I got, had close encounters 
uh, with three people, they happen to be women, I think it's pure circumstance, but who were psychotic, really intensely schizophrenic. And I met all of them because I was living in the Dalai Lama's doctor's home. And so they gravitated there one way or another, and I was the, I was the intermediary. I was the person who could speak, after a while, could speak both languages. But um, very painful to witness, very sad to witness, a person with that level of psychosis, where one, one woman in particular said, the devil is inside of me. The devil is inside of me. She really felt she was the devil, right? So we have that spectrum. But then we just come into more the, into the, the spectrum of being normal, normal delusion, normal delusion. And where Buddhist philosophers have agreed for a long time, at least in the whole current from India, is although there are multiple levels there, here's one where they pretty much all agree, this one's inborn. That is, we can, oh, for example, racism. Racism, that's a type of delusion. Uh, people with my skin color or my shape of eyes, uh, we're superior. Putting it that way, it just sounds really psychotic, I think, really. Skin color? What about tanning lotion? <laughs> <laughs> Does that make you better or worse? <laughs> you know, <laughs> how about eye surgery? Now you're a better person or word person? You know, it's but there it is. Some people on that basis. Oh, look at my skin. I'm better than you. You got dark, darker skin than mine. Uh, I'm better. You have to serve me because I'm. I've got white pigmentation. If I'm an albino, it'd be even better. <laughs> so we see that you know it's really psychotic. Racism is a form of psychosis in my perspective. But that's acquired. I think. I think we have to learn how to be racist. I think so. And class, you know, I speak with a Oxford accent, you speak with a, a lower accent, well, you're obviously inferior. I should rather say you are quite inferior to me. Because <laughs> you know, we, we talk different. <laughs> you know, so that's learned. There are many types of learned delusion in terms of who we are. But the one that is delusional that we're born with, where there's a wide degree of consensus, is the following. In Tibetan, and it is the grasping onto the self, onto I am, as someone is is really here supporting, that is autonomous, autonomous, really here, autonomously, really me. Rangyatupa, substantially present, da a, an autonomous, substantially existent self, and then even though it's not in that phrase, what is immediately implied in this when they unpack it is, I'm the controller. I'm the controller. Let's take a look at my right hand. You want to watch something happen? For those on podcasts, I just did something amazing. I raised and lowered my right hand. <laughs> and I did that. If anybody wants to see it again, I, I can deliver the goods. You know, but... I, I'm going to do it. Now, go down. <laughs> My hand just saluted me. You know, the feeling that, you know, I'm in here. And I tell the hand, jump, and it says, how far? Because <laughs> you know? I'm really in charge here. <laughs> At least until I start practicing shamatha. <laughs> And then it just blown, you know. I say, okay, mind for 24 minutes, shut up. And it says, you shut up. <laughs> I'm going to talk your, I'm going to talk my head off in the next 20, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> and we find out who's in charge, and it ain't me. So that's a real eye opener. Shamata suddenly challenges who's in charge here. 
because I can move my hand up and down, but I can't move my mind up and down. That's kind of weird. I thought it was my mind. And so, in this practice, we're coming right into that nucleus of, in, of an innate delusional sense of self. I'm the controller. I'm not my body, I'm not my mind. I stand a little bit apart. One of the, com- the, the classic metaphors is I'm in a, a group of merchants, or let's say in modern terminology, I'm in a br- business franchise, and I'm the CEO. I'm among the businessmen, but I'm the chief. I'm the, I, uh, I, this person here, I'm, among my, I'm, I'm within the midst of my body, various biological functions and so forth, and I'm in the midst of a whole bunch of mental activities taking place, and in the midst of this complex, this system, this company of Alan Wallace Incorporated, I'm the CEO. That my employees come and go. Thoughts come and go. Food comes and, and it goes. Moods come and go. But I stay. I'm impermanent, but not as impermanent as his thoughts. They come and they flicker, flicker in and out like fireflies. But I'm more durable. That in Buddhist philosophy, that's considered to be innate. That we don't acquire that from racist parents and so forth and so on. And so in this practice, we're coming right into the nucleus of that. And what we're examining, so this is to come back to again and again. When you're sitting quietly, and this is why I encourage the body to be still, that we're doing as little as possible. We're making things simple. This again was one of the beauties of Galileo's approach. That is when he was not only a great astronomer, but he was the great, I think the first really great terrestrial physicist, rolling balls down a ramp and so forth and so on, developing the technology to ask some really good questions and be able to put those questions to the test of experience and coming to conclusions, right? He asked very simple questions and he simplified. He he asked simple, he would just take two balls, big ball, little ball, roll them down a ramp, or actually just a ball, and ask the question, when a ball rolls down a ramp, does it accelerate or does it go at constant velocity? Never, never mind two balls. Does it go at constant velocity or does it accelerate? Well, he had a good enough timepiece that he actually could check. But what he did was he simplified. He took the, the mess of reality with so many complex variables. He simplified it down and asked a simple question. Right? And likewise, when he took the big ball and a little ball off the Tower of Pisa, it was a simple thing. Right? Well, that's what we're doing here. We're simplifying. We're, not, we're doing very, very little. We're trying to do only one thing, really. So keeping the body really still. We're not talking. We're not thinking about a bunch of stuff. We're not remembering and imagining, hoping and fearing. We're just sitting there, and we're doing one thing, inverting and releasing the awareness. That's like dropping balls off the power, Tower of Pisa. And if we're doing that, just doing, just doing one thing, and doing it repeatedly, then bringing in this metacognitive awareness, this introverted attention. As we do it and we do it again, we invert and then we release. Do you sense a faint glow, a glow, a presence, an appearance, a sense an invisible sense, any type of sense. Someone in here. Someone in here doing it. And it's me. So it's entirely experiential. 
There are multiple ways to approach this. One may approach it analytically, conceptually, using, you know. But this is not that. This is just radical empiricism. But tending closely, is there just an experience? And you're looking for something that may very well exist. So it's not kind of the classic fourfold analysis or what have you to come to what you've already decided must be true before you even begin. And that is, the self is not found within the body and mind, not found separate, blah, blah, blah. You know, well, we already know the answer when we begin. So it can be kind of a routine, or it may be very, very powerful vipassana. Here, we don't actually know the que- We don't know the answer. Do you have a sense? It's a, it's a real experiential question, not a rhetorical one. But when you're sitting there quietly doing only one thing, you have a sense of there being someone who's doing it. And if you do, look at it and see what you see. See whether, as you're attending to the one who's doing it, whether you're experiencing anything more or less than we're simply releasing without an object. So previously we had a question, and that is when you're attending to the foreground of the mind, thoughts, images, and then you shift focus and attend to the background, that space, whether you're attending to nothing, a sheer absence, just nothing at all, or whether you're attending to something that actually has attributes. And in an earlier conversation with Emilio, then a sense in his experience, it wasn't right or wrong, it was simply what he, exp- he reported. And that, in a way, this is actually prasangika. If you're reporting simply what appeared, and you're not delusional, then what you're saying is true. Right? This appeared. If it appeared, I mean, take LSD and say, this is what appeared. If you think this is what was really out there, then you may be heavily mistaken. But if you say, I took this substance, and then I looked out at the snowfields, and they were all like diamonds, each one was a prism, and it was incredibly beautiful, because the whole snowfield was just a snowfield of light, and variegated light of refracted light of all different colors. Well, okay, that was your experience. So in a similar fashion here, when you're tending inwards, does something appear? And if so, attend very closely. Examine, and then release. Okay? So do it more than once. That's the short answer. Do it more than once. Yes, Nicola. Hello. Hi. So um, I'd like to go back to what you said about chamata right. as a way of us sitting down and finding out that actually uh, we're not so much in charge. Yeah. Um, but in doing shamatha, we also sit down, and we sit down with the idea that I'm going to quiet the mind. I'm going to tame the mind. Yeah, that's the aspiration. So I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to be in a quiet place. I'm going to be. I'm going to employ all these techniques so that my mind quiets down. Yeah. So then the question is. <laughs> Who has made that decision? Yeah, I mean, there still seems to be. We either go in with the idea of um, there is no me, and I'm going to find that out. Uh-huh. Okay, so I shouldn't say we, me. I'm going to uh, find out that I don't exist. That's a real koan. <laughs> or, or if you I, don't exist, how will you find out that you don't exist? Because nothing <laughs> cannot realize anything. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna re-listen this in the podcast. <laughs> if you don't exist, you can't realize anything. That's what I'm saying. Okay. 
rabbit's horns are not hard. But then the, the, other, side, the other side of it is that, okay, then I, I, I sit down to quiet the mind. Quite so. So there is the sense of me trying to do something. That's very true, very true. Me who is not in charge. I guess. Not in charge? Well, this is what you said to, I, I forget your name, I'm sorry. Raul. Raul, yeah? Raul. Raul's question. You, you said. You said. Do you have a nickname also? <laughs> Raul? Which do you prefer? Fernando <laughs> He's been deceiving me all along. So for the people. Okay. Fernando it is. But now I have to re remember a new name. You're really overburdening my synapses here. Okay. So Fernando, so yes. Fernando Raul. What did I tell Fernando? Well, you said that we find out that me is not really in charge. What did we find? That me is not really in charge. Right? Is that what I said? Isn't that what you said? So, <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> That's what the podcast is for. <laughs> I said, look. Well, the, the me I said, look, that and don't look rhetorically. Don't look as if you already know the answer. Examine closely. Do you have a sense of being someone in here who's doing the meditation? And I did say that Buddhist philosophers there's quite a broad consensus among multiple philosophical schools in Indian Buddhism, agreed that the sense, now very something very specifically though, the sense, because none of them say, I don't exist. If they did really believe that, they couldn't say it. Because if you believe you don't exist, how can you say you don't exist? Because you, you are the one that just said that you don't exist, but if you don't exist, you can't say anything. Was that too fast? <laughs> no, I got it. I got it this time. <laughs> so, no, they're not at any point saying you don't exist. Mm -hmm. Unless they're delusional, in which case that's one more form of psychosis. Well, psychosis. What they are challenging, though, is a sense that I do exist. Not only do I exist, I exist somewhat separate from my body and mind. I'm somewhat autonomous. I'm in charge here. I don't change as rapidly as my body and mind changes. I'm substantial, I'm autonomous, and I'm in charge. There is such a sense. That's what they're saying. There is such a, that exists as much as a clock exists. That sense does exist, like tomatoes and pears, and it exists. It exists just for starters, because it does things. Anything that does something does exist. That's a good, robust, kind of practical definition of reality. If something does something, it exists. Something that doesn't exist at all doesn't do anything at all. So this sense that I am, I am in charge, I am, that does things, that influences things. Therefore, it does exist. The, just as if I think, and I'll go back to my silly example, because it's just so easy to understand. If I'm sitting here thinking, where's my, je suis Napoleon. <laughs> you know, that sense that I'm Napoleon does exist, you know, if I were psychotic, you know. And the fact that I, I can't speak French doesn't really faze me, you know. <laughs> I can speak with a very good French accent, you know, and that's good enough for Napoleon. After all, I'm Napoleon. <laughs> you know, and you will salute when you see me. Right? So that sense that I'm Napoleon does exist. It can make me act in very silly ways. Is there any Napoleon here? The answer is no. So I may indeed have a sense. I'm autonomous. I, I, I. Is there any actual person? ego, self, that has those attributes. There, the Buddhist challenge is, 
No, but it's not something to memorize. It doesn't really help to memorize it. Oh, good, I have one more right answer in the Buddhist book. You have to check it out. So, but I think you're getting to something very interesting as time runs out. So I'm going to imagine where you're going here. So time is running out. And that is, here we are in the practice of shamatha. We're facing all, first of all, a body that... Um, I'm just going to wildly guess that what I'm about to say is relevant. If it isn't, we've only wasted two minutes, okay? Uh, and that is... On a course level, it really seems like I am in charge. I mean, my body's not, I'm not having epileptic seizures constantly. My body is not physically out of control, right? And so I'm sitting like here because I wanted to sit like this. I'm sitting relatively still because I want to. So on a course level, um, and when I wanted to focus on a, a loved one and an enemy and so forth, that happened. So there's some degree of being in charge here. So as long as you kind of keep it in motion, keep, keep it lively, keep it moving and so forth, I don't think I'm crazy. Right? And then when I try to do something really simple, like just watch my breath for 24 minutes, then they say, oh, I, I actually am crazy. You know, this mind is completely out of control. I can't even focus for five seconds. I can't even count one to five. I thought I could count to one to five, but no longer. I get to three and um, 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 <laughs> you know? And so then we say, all right, I, somebody's, I've got to start developing some sanity. This is crazy to lose your mind every five seconds. Right. This is really crazy. It's intolerable. And so then we start taking charge. And we learn all these skillful means to really take charge. Relaxing, stability, vividness. We start getting, oh, I, they're, they're, I'm doing better. There, I am doing better. I could focus for 20 seconds at a time. And then I go into retreat and, oh, I'm doing now. I had some really good sessions. I was there for 20 minutes at a time. I was really doing well. Ah, now it's going better. I'm on stage four. Oh, the practice is really going better. I'm really getting in charge of this mind. I'm taming this wild elephant. The monk in the winding road is starting to tame the wild elephant of the mind. And uh, the monkey is walking behind the elephant instead of leading it. Very cool. And then finally you achieve shamatha. You even get to stage eight. Laxity is gone. Excitation is gone. You're just on a downhill smooth slope to achieving shamatha. Right? And, oh, now I'm really in charge. Now you achieve shamatha. But in achieving shamatha, and in this process, the mind is getting quieter and quieter and quieter. And the thinking, I think, therefore I am, the thinking that is reconstructing, reconstructing, and reifying, and reifying, and re-reifying, I am, I am, I am, is also being subdued in the process. So on the one hand, there's greater mastery over the mind. On the other hand, the reification of I am is dwindling, right as the mastery is increasing. So you come to the substrate consciousness and your mind, Nicholas' mind, with your personal history, your hopes, your vision, your plans for the future, everything you think about yourself, like a snowflake, melts. All that is constructing, I am positioned in the spectrum of my life with my past my future that I anticipate and who I am now. It's like an icicle that's just dripping away until it's quiet. And all that was constructing the sense, that sense of self of I am and I'm in charge, it turned out that needed to be sustained with concepts. But now the mind's gone quiet. And it's just blissful. It's just luminous. It's just still. 
And without any talk, without any chatter, without any logic, without any reasoning, one simply immediately experiences. This is just without talking. This is just bliss arising. This is just luminosity. This is just silence. But you don't need to say this is silence because that would disrupt the silence. You just know it. It's, it's a non-verbal, non-articulated, a quiet knowing. But that whole sense of I am the controller has melted. It's melted away. Because it has to be sustained with thought. But the thought has melted away. So what has happened when you've settled, when you've achieved shamatha, your mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness, is that this reified delusional sense of I am melts away and becomes largely dormant. Dormant just like a bear in hibernation. It's a very close analogy. A bear who, you know, gets really, really fat in the fall, gets, gets lots of nuts and berries and squirrels and so forth, gets really blubbery, then goes into the cave and falls deep asleep. If one didn't know much about bears, one can think, oh, there's a big grizzly bear and the big stupid thing's asleep. I'll go poke it with a stick. Then you find that the bear is actually deep asleep, but not that deep asleep. <laughs> and the, the, the bear will add you to its blubber. Because it's not comatose. Bears go into deep sleep, but they can be awakened, especially if you poke them with a stick. And so the, this deep asleep bear that just basically, you know, makes it through the winter with very low cal 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 caloric burnout uh, is like the mental afflictions. It really struck me also this afternoon that achieving shamatha is like, um, you know, some bank robbers, at least I've, I've only never seen a bank robbery, but I've, I've seen them on television. Uh, bank robbers who come in, come into a bank and first they'll throw in gas, right? And every, uh, everybody falls on the floor, right? And then they come and just clean out all the cash registers, right? Because everybody fell asleep, right? Ah, like that. And then they run off with the cash, right? Well, shamatha is making your mental afflictions go, ah, and fall on the floor. They're not dead, and they're not hibernating. They're just deep asleep. They can be aroused, especially as soon as you come out of meditation. So the shamatha is really cunning, the strategy of ethics, samadhi, and wisdom is really cunning. It's like, it's like a really good bank job. That is, first case the joint, then put everybody in the bank asleep. And then once we're all asleep, it's just easy to clean out all the, all the cash registers and so forth. And so likewise, when your mental afflictions, especially this n nuclear one of I am, I'm in charge, and then it's all of its babies, craving, hostility, jealousy, pride, and so forth. When you've basically subdued them, made them go dormant, then you can bring in Vipassana and finish them off ruthlessly, mercilessly. You don't just run off with their money, you do them in. Because they're so weak, you really knocked them out. They're just like... And you come in with Madrushi's sword and you just cut them down. There's time to be ruthless with respect to mental afflictions. No mercy. No mercy. So that's why. So shamatha is really bold. This is why the Buddha spoke of the minister not going out to try to subdue the prince by himself. Because the prince is your mental afflictions. That unruly prince that was just screw screwing around all over the place, he's your mental afflictions. 
And if you send out Vipassana all by himself to try to subdue your mental afflictions, your mental afflictions will probably just subdue your Vipassana. Right? But bring the big bodyguard and throw the prince to the ground, hold a dagger to his throat. Then he really behaves. And then Vipassana comes in and finishes the job. So that's how it works. Okay? Good. Hola so. Dinner time.